Listen, this week, I've had the, the opportunity to tell many people as I've talked to them about our church that God is absolutely alive and God is absolutely moving in the life of this church. I think we've seen it. I think we continue to see it. And there's no doubt that God is moving, that God is changing lives, that God is making a difference in lives, and that we're seeing a difference in this church, in the life of this church. Just in the few short weeks of Good News Club, we've seen two kids come to know Christ. One several weeks ago and one this past Monday, I had the privilege of sitting down with a little boy named Noah Lake. And Noah came back and the first question I asked is, Noah, what do you want to talk about, buddy? What's on your mind? And he said, I want to ask Jesus to come into my heart and save me from my sins. That's real. Listen, we can't produce that. We can try and we can fabricate that all that we want. But that's God. Only God can do that. Only God can bring about true change in a person's life, in the life of a church. Listen, if God were not moving, I'd tell you God's not moving. But I really believe that God's moving in the life of this church. You see, it's not us doing the work and asking God to come join us. It's the other way around. It's God doing the work and God asking us to join Him. And I believe that's what we're seeing. Listen, today, as I said, I want this this letter to be an encouragement to you. I don't want it to be discouraging. But I do think there's areas in this letter, there are places in this letter where we really need to take an eternal evaluation of our own lives. Because we ultimately are the church. We ultimately make up what is the church. And so if there's a group or an individual that is struggling, that has something going on in their lives and they're not dealing with it, then guess what? Ultimately, we as the church, we feel that effect. As we should. So let's jump into the letter this morning in chapter 3 in Revelation we're going to start in verse 14 and we're going to conclude this of the seven letters to the seven churches with the last letter to the church in Laodicea. It says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Verse 17, You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Verse 19, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. 
Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Verse 21, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much this morning for this opportunity. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the wisdom, the conviction that comes from it. God, it is my prayer this morning that any and all chains, God, that have us bound to sin, to doubt, to fear, whatever it may be, God, that is keeping us from being the person, the people, the church that you have called us to be. God, I pray that you and only you would break those chains this morning. God, give me the freedom within your spirit to speak your words this morning. God, I beg you, meet with us this morning. God, change our hearts, change our lives to be the people in the church that you've called us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as I begin to study this and look at this, I could not think of another word other than the word complacent when I thought about this church. So that's why we give this church the title, The Church Caught in Complacency. Because that's simply where they were. And I thought, as I thought farther about that, how funny is it that this church continued to believe that they could operate the way they wanted to operate, no one would ever notice. Until Jesus comes in with his evaluation and tells them exactly what they need to hear, though it might not have been what they wanted to hear. He told them what they needed to hear. So that brings us to the, set, the seventh church of the seven letters. And just to recap real quick. Every single week, we've pulled from a different church. The first week being Ephesus. And that church thought they had it all together. They looked like a great church. But when Jesus came in and evaluated, he said, But you've walked away from your first love. Then you had Smyrna, who was the exact opposite. They looked like a wretched church. They looked like a poor church. And Jesus actually said, you know what? Even though you may look poor, you're rich. Because I'm in you. I'm with you. And then we went to Pergamos, who some commentaries say they were engaged in compromise. They thought that somehow, some way, that they could be a part of the world and yet continue to be the church. And Jesus calls them to repentance. And then you had Thyatira, and, and some commentaries said there that if Pergamus was engaging in compromise, Thyatira was celebrating anniversaries with compromise. 
And then you have Sardis. Sardis was a church that had just absolutely quit. That absolutely quit. They thought, you know, we've done our part. We've done enough. We've served long enough. I've done my job and we're just going to sit back and ride this thing through. And then we had Philadelphia. And Philadelphia was one of those churches that they were faithful. They were effective. They were loyal. They were proving to be the true church. And then you get to the seventh letter in the church of Laodicea. And it's almost as if you read this letter, you sense the sickness of this church. One of the things that that sticks out the most in that letter and that probably makes this letter the most known of the seven is the simple fact that Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out. Or I'm going to spew you out because you're neither cold nor hot. I, I thought about this, being Jesus evaluating this church and in his evaluation. I mean, we're talking about Jesus. <clears throat> I've got a five-year-old. I've got a two-year-old. There are some smells that just absolutely will make you want to hurl. You've been there. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, the nastiest of nasties can happen when you have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. But we're talking about Jesus. I mean, this is Jesus. He could smell anything, right? And if he wanted to, to avoid making his stomach turn, he could make it avoid making his stomach turn. I mean, this is Jesus. He could have withstood the nastiest of nasties. And it wouldn't have phased him. But yet, he encounters this church that is lukewarm. And he warns them, he challenges them, listen, if you don't change, I'm going to spew you out. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Thought it was interesting to note as well in this one letter, there's nothing good to say to the church of Laodicea. He has absolutely nothing to say good as far as their conduct to the church of Laodicea. Again, we need to clarify, though you probably already know who the author is, And the occasion for writing this letter, as you look at the map, maybe you have a map in your Bible, you'll see the seven churches kind of in an arc, in a mountain shape, starting in Ephesus. And then we're going to end with Laodicea. And if you look, it's about 100 miles across from Ephesus to Laodicea. So you just, we began several weeks ago descending back down that mountain to the church of Laodicea. But we know that John, being on the island of Patmos, he is pinning this letter, but through Jesus Christ, who is telling him what to write to this this church in Laodicea. He approaches this church a little bit differently than he does the other churches. He doesn't reference anything from chapter 1 like he does in some of the other letters. But in the way that he describes himself as a perfect match, a perfect fit, to this church in Laodicea. It's a unique introduction. He says in verse 14 to the church of Laodicea, I want you to write these words. 
the words of the Amen, Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, all three of those describing the the attributes, the character of who Jesus Christ is. But why is that? What is, what is the amen or the amen? Well, that word meaning means firm, fixed, certain, faithful, unchangeable. All those words that surround the meaning of amen. That is who Jesus is. He's unchangeable. He is fixed at the right hand of the Father. You see, he's explaining to them in terminology that they can understand, this is who I am. I am the Amen. The faithful and true witness. He's completely trustworthy. John 14, 6, he says what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is perfectly accurate not that he needed to validate to this church that in his assessment he was going to be trustworthy he was going to be accurate that's the only way that Jesus could be there's no other way that Jesus could be he would not go to this church and give them a false assessment but he is just reaffirming what they should already know that he is trustworthy he will be perfectly accurate that his testimony, it never fails. It's always reliable. But then I thought the beginning of creation. What did he mean by the beginning of creation? What he meant by that was that he was simply the source of it. He was the power by which creation began. Not that he was first created by God because we believe that he was already there. He coexists with God. One commentary said this, He of creation, the supreme person ever born, but though he was born as man, he always existed as God, and while as man, he had a beginning. And as God, he was the beginning. You see, this was the perfect introduction for this letter to the church of Laodicea. And here's why. Because it affirmed to the people in Laodicea that he knows what he's talking about. You know, how many times in our lives do we try to live our lives in such a way that basically through our lives we're telling God, God, you have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Even though you have these plans laid out for me, you have no idea what you're talking about. I know better than you. You see, that's where the church of Laodicea was. What our Lord's saying in this letter is the church of Laodicea, the church at First Baptist Westminster, we need to understand exactly who Christ is. And this is what he was saying, that I am the one who has confirmed all the promises and covenants of God. I am the one who speaks truth and the only truth. I am the beginning of creation. That's who is writing this letter to the church of Laodicea. Now, as we begin uh, each week walking through and identifying the place, the people, the problem, the promise, let's do that this morning.
as we look at the place, there's a lot of information to be known about the church of Laodicea, and it's going to tie into a lot of the, the parallels that Jesus is going to use. It's almost as if he's preaching or teaching or talking about a parable here because he relates so much of their life then to this letter. But the city we know is in modern-day Turkey, and I'm not even going to pretend to know how to pronounce the modern-day name. You can Google that if you want to. Eski Hazar. We'll go with that. It was located about 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia, which is the last letter that we studied. and would be directly east, as I mentioned earlier, about 100 miles from Ephesus. Colossae, which is the, the book of Colossians that Paul wrote, was 10 miles away from Laodicea. Laodicea became a very important city for many reasons that we're going to study today. But, but one of the, the main reasons why it became such an important city was it was basically a crossroads. If you literally went north, south, and make sure I do this right, east, west, right? Laodicea was right smack in the middle. So for all the trade industry, it became a, a very vital place for banking, because it was a crossroads for industry. That's where if people were going, it did not, did not matter if they were going east, west, south, north, did not matter. They were going to cross through Laodicea. And so it became a, a very popular place. A place that saw a lot of traffic when people were traveling. But it's interesting because that's... Not why we recognize or relate to the letter of Laodicea. The main reason why we are, uh, why this letter is so recognized by so many today is because of those words, I will spew you out of my mouth. I will spit you out because you are neither hot nor cold. Why is that? Why did Jesus use that illustration? It's funny. They had poor water supply. A place that was known for their wealth. You see, they were destroyed years ago by an earthquake. Destroyed by an earthquake. And the Roman government came in and said, Hey, if you want, we will loan you the money to rebuild your city. And you know what the people of Laodicea said? They said, You know what? Because we're so wealthy because of our banking industry, because of our in industrial industry, we're okay. We don't need your money. We'll build our city back. And you know what? They went and they rebuilt their city ten times better than what it was because they had enough money to do it. But you know what was sad about this city was their water supply was horrible. It was wretched. It was so bad that the people couldn't drink their own water. They had two places, one north, one south of them. The one north of them had a, was, was well known for their hot springs. And people would travel there to find healing. And then there was a place south of them that was known for having cold springs. And people would go there for refreshment and to get cool, cold water. 
But right smack in the middle of those two cities laid Laodicea, and guess what? They had neither. They had a couple of rivers running through, but because Laodicea became so populated, those rivers would dry up. And so they had to find some way to get water from one of those cities to Laodicea. And so what they did was they built underground ducts, aqueducts. And it was through those aqueducts that they tried to feed water into the city of Laodicea. Now think about that. This is thousands of years ago, and these guys are coming up with this idea. You see, they they were never a strong military city because all the military that wanted to come in and to attack, all they had to do to flush them out was cut their water supply off because eventually they had to come out and get water. They could not survive without water. And so they would bring water in through these underground systems and by the time this water would get to Laodicea, guess what? It was lukewarm. It was disgusting. It had a taste that you and I can't fathom. One thing I can't stand lukewarm is coffee. You ever had lukewarm coffee? It's disgusting. Right? You sit it on your desk and you go, well, man, I just sat it there 20 minutes ago. It ought to be all right, right? No, it's disgusting. That's the way this water tasted in Laodicea. And so here's the brilliance of who Jesus is. He uses something that's very practical to the church of Laodicea and saying, listen, you are no different than the water you're bringing into your city. It's disgusting. It's useless. You can't do anything with it, much less drink it. Because you just spew it out of your mouth. I mentioned earlier their banking industry was, was uh, second to none. Because they had so many people coming in and out of Laodicea because they were at a crossroads. That their banking industry was second to none. They were so wealthy. So wealthy. That they didn't have to rely on anyone for anything. If they needed the funds to do anything, they had the funds to do that. They didn't rely on anyone. They were self-sufficient, if you will. The other was their wool industry. They became famous for that, their wool. It was a soft wool and it had a glossy black color. And it was used for clothing, it was used for weaving rugs. They used it locally, and then they were able to sell it and export it out. And then their medical school, I thought this was interesting. They were very famous for their medical school. But here was the reason why they were so prominent and so recognized with their medical school was because they had a a gel or a cream that you could put on your eyes. If you were having eyesight trouble, you could go and you could buy this cream and you could put it on your eyes, and it was believed to have cured whatever ailment you had with your eyes and so people came from all over to get or to acquire that eye cream I mentioned those four things right there did you catch anything though as you read that letter this church this city had become self-sufficient And I believe in doing so, when they realized their self-sufficiency, they thought, you know what? 
we, we are supreme, we are above who Jesus Christ is. That we don't need to rely on Jesus anymore. Because we have arrived. I, that's the way I interpret it. That's my commentary, strictly. Is, is the city. And because the church was in the city, they began to influence the church. And because the people in the church were in the city, it, it began to, to, to bleed into the church. And the thoughts of the city and the people of the city, they begin to believe, you know what, we've arrived. We don't need the Roman government. We're still going to pay our taxes because we have to. But if we need anything financially, we're going to take care of it. Even though our water's poor, even though our water's horrible, we've got enough money, we'll take care of it. People are still going to come to get our wool. They're still going to come to get our cream. We're self-sufficient. We have arrived. And Jesus tells them, you know what, I know your deeds. You see, if we ever get to a place in our lives where we forget that Jesus is watching, we're outside of the will of God because He's always watching. There's never a thing that you and I can think, say, or do that Jesus does not see. And He tells them, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. That was the problem. I found it interesting, if you turn back to Colossians 4.16, you'll see in Paul's letter to the, to the Colossians, he tells them, because there was some heresy going on within the church of Colossians, there was some heresy going on and, and they were beginning to believe themselves that they could reach a place in their lives where they, they were above Christ, that He was simply a, a human being. And that was it. That they could obtain more knowledge and power than Jesus Christ Himself. And that was going on in the church in Colossians. And so in 4.16, Paul writes... As he's writing to the Colossian church, he tells them, as you read this letter to the church, make sure that it gets over to the church of Laodicea. Make sure that they hear these words. So that gives us a little bit of insight of what's going on to the problem here in the church at Laodicea. They had become lukewarm. I found this in a, a commentary. It said, Sardis was dead but had few living worthy believers. Thyatira was compromising, sinful, and idolatrous, but had some who had held the truth. Watch what he said about Laodicea. He said, Laodicea was a church that was absolutely no church. Listen to Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Paul makes it... We, we're assuming Paul wrote the book of Romans. He said, God will judge you on the basis of your deeds. God will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for the glory and honor and immorality. He'll give unrighteousness. He'll give eternal life. Sorry, he'll give eternal life to those who are selfishly ambitious to those who are selfishly ambitious and don't obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he'll bring wrath. 
and indignation. You know, in essence, if you read James, James pretty much says the same things. He says that we're going to be, na- we're going to be made known by our works. In Hierapolis, they had this hot springs. And they were very famous for these hot springs. They were very well known. In Colossae, you had this cold spring. And it ran down from the high mountains. It was a thirst-quenching water. And it was famous for that. But in Laodicea, they had neither one. They had neither hot springs or a cold springs. It was lukewarm. And because of that, it was not hot enough to relax or restore. It was not cold enough to cool you off or refresh your quench of thirst. Laodicea couldn't provide any of that. It was lukewarm. And Jesus says, because of that, I'm going to spit you out. You're absolutely useless. There was no use for that lukewarm water. What was the spiritual significance in using all of those examples? They had no spiritual value. Their virtue, they had none. Their vision, they had none. Jesus was simply saying to the church of Laodicea, you make me sick. You know, it's interesting, you read in in these letters that some of these churches, and, and even in the New Testament, as Jesus is teaching, he weeps. In some places, we see the anger of Christ. But only in this letter do we see Jesus sickened by the church. John John MacArthur said this, he said, in the history of the church and in my experience, no one has been harder to reach for Christ than a false Christian. Listen to this. Satisfied with the measure of his good works, satisfied with his attitude toward God, and they sit in the churches across the world. It would be easier to win a harlot. It would be easier to win a criminal. It would be easier to win an agnostic or an atheist. It would be easier, Jesus certainly said, to reach the publicans and the harlots than it is to reach the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There's more hope for the salvation of an atheist than a spool, half-hearted, conceited, hypocrite who thinks he knows the truth and pretends to accept it. Boy, that's strong words from one commentary that I read. Watch what Jesus says in verse 17. He says, You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need anything. But do you not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, And naked. How sad is that? That a church would be that way. 
that they thought they had reached a place to where they had no need for Christ, that they had arrived, and Christ comes back and says, you know what, guys, do you really just not see it? (laughs) You need to use your own cream or ointment for your eyes and open up your eyes. You make this stuff, you need to use it because you're failing to see reality. Some strong words. He says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me. Now wait a minute. He just said in verse 17, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor. You have no money, you have nothing. But yet he's telling them you need to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. Listen. To obtain a relationship with Christ doesn't require anything but you. There's no money exchange. There's no money involved. Isaiah 55.1 says, Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Doesn't matter where you are in your life, doesn't matter how much uh, money you've obtained or made, or how little you've obtained or made, that does not matter. Christ has called the church to come. Christ has called you and I to come and eat and drink with Him. He goes on further in verse 19 to say, and white clothes to wear. You see, it's, it's interesting because you remember the wool that they were making was black. And He's saying, I want to clothe you with white. How ironic is that, that the city of Laodicea had black wool and Christ is telling them, listen, I want to exchange that black wool for the white clothes that I want to clothe you with so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. That's true love. Don't you love those people that you know, you know, you know, you know that they love you? And even in those times of criticism, even in those times of discipline and rebuke, you know that they love you? That's Jesus. That's who Jesus is, and that's what he's saying here. So be earnest and repent. He says, Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'm going to come in and I'm going to eat with that person and they with me. Boy, what an incredible promise. What an incredible promise that the children of God, those that have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and personal Savior, have that promise that we are going to commune, we are going to eat with Christ. And there's no better seat at the table than that seat right there. There's no better seat at the table than that seat right there. This church, to sum it all up, had absolutely no spiritual value in it whatsoever. In today's world, I guess we could sum it up in saying this church was living for themselves. And they were identified as a church living for themselves. 
And Jesus used some of the most practical examples that he could during their time to relay that message to this church. Church, can I ask you, where are we at today? Are we at some point going to be get, are we going to get caught just like the church of Laodicea in a place of complacency? Thinking, hey, we've arrived. We've arrived. We don't need God anymore. We got this. Listen, we can have all the money in the bank. We can sit on all the money in the bank. And if Christ didn't at the helm... We're in a downward spiral. And we'll be caught in a place of complacency. Because we're not going to be cold and we're not going to be hot. We're going to be lukewarm. Listen, there's some here today, I'm sure. That's the way you've lived your life. That's the way you lived your life. You accepted Christ maybe years ago, weeks ago, whenever it might have been. And yet, just like the lady I read about, you have no hits, no runs, no errors. And for generations you were taught that's the way to live. But you've had no spiritual significance whatsoever in this life. That letter right there most relates to you if that's you. Because you have simply sat and done nothing. But you think you know it all. You think you've done it all, and yet you've done nothing. Listen, it's my prayer for my life, it's my prayer for this church, that we never reach a place of complacency. We never reach a place where we're lukewarm. Why? Because it sickens Jesus Christ. He says he would rather be us be cold or hot than be lukewarm. Basically, the way that's interpreted is he would rather you be a Christian on fire or not a Christian at all because he can't stand a proclaiming Christian who's doing absolutely nothing. That's what he's saying. So maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ. Listen, I just said it a minute ago, there's no greater seat, there's no better seat than the seat beside our Heavenly Father. And in accepting that gift of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross, guess what? We're given that seat. We're given new life, just like the church of Laodicea. We're given eyes to see the purpose that we have in life. We're given new clothes. We take off that black, wretched sin and we're given the white clothes of Jesus Christ. We're given vision for life. You see, that kills me about some people. They have no vision for life. They have no idea what their purpose, what their call, what their vision is in life. It's through Jesus Christ that you can know 
what that purpose and vision really is. And so here's where I switched up the service this morning. As you saw in the worship guide, Sandra singing this morning, and she was supposed to have the special. And I just simply asked that we change that to the end. She was singing it on the way to church. I didn't say anything to her. I didn't tell her I was going to do this. Mark was actually supposed to, and he didn't, so I had to. Now I'm in trouble even more, but that's okay. But Sandra's singing, and, and I'm going to ask her to come, and she's going to sing. And um, I, 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 don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is that God wants to do this morning with you and with me. But, but here's, here's my prayer this morning. Forget about the time. Forget about the time. Forget about the weather. Listen, for you individually, God's got something special. I don't care if you're 85 or you're 12. God's got something special for your life. And He has you here in this church for a reason. I tell Sandra all the time, instead of complaining about what's going on, let's find a solution. Let's do something about it. I don't know what your purpose is. God does. Maybe that's what you're searching for. Maybe you've walked away. Maybe you've wandered away from Christ and you're in that lukewarm state in your life and you want to get that right this morning. Maybe you've already accepted Christ, but you've never been baptized and you want to do that. You want to make that known this morning. Listen, we're holding a baptismal service next Sunday morning over there. We're meeting over there Sunday morning. All right, go ahead and put that in your memory bank. We're meeting over there next Sunday morning for baptism. And I hope that's all we do. Whatever it is, I don't know. I know God's got something special for this church. And I believe that because He has something special for this church, He has something special for you. And I want you to figure out what that is. Mark's going to come up. Mark and I are both going to be down here. Listen to that. Did y'all hear that? That's God affirming. I hope. (laughs) I hope. But Mark's going to come. He's going to stand with me. Sandra's going to come and sing. And I just, I want you to just bow your head. Close your eyes. All right? I just want you, while Sandra sings, I want you to bow your heads. Close your eyes. I'm not going to ask you to stand. Sandra's going to sing, and if you need to come forward and pray, if you want to get a group of guys or women to come up and pray, or if you need to talk to Mark and I, I want you to come up. I beg you, come up this morning. Let's nail down whatever it is that you need to nail down this morning. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for your word. and Thank you for the challenge that lies within it, God. It's my humble prayer that, that God, we, as people, as a church. God, that you would give us the wisdom and discernment that we need to recognize the onslaughts of Satan and the tactics of Satan to get us as individuals and a church to become that lukewarm soul. God, we understand and know by our own power we can't stand against him, but God, we know that we can stand in you, the one who is victorious, the one who holds the very breath of life and the creation of the universe in his hands, God, you have the power. 
And so God, this morning, we give you this time and pray that all chains that are bounding us, God, that you would break them and that your spirit would move this morning. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.